Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. I'm thankful to connect with Robbie Jones, the CEO and founder of Public Religion Research Institute, for this conversation on the impact and the importance of polling and the new difficulties as a result of COVID-19, maybe difficulties and perhaps, Robbie, opportunities. Um, so, Robbie Jones, welcome to the soul of the nation. We are so excited to have you. Thanks. I'm, I'm glad to be here. So, Robbie, what kind of polling has PRRI done since COVID-19 began? And how has COVID-19 changed the trends you look for? Well, you know, like everyone, um, uh, you know, kind of everything has changed and there yet there are some things that are still um, the same. Um, so the pandemic has certainly changed, you know, the lens through which we're seeing um, everything and the kinds of things we track around religion, culture, and politics. Um, but, you know, we're seeing some, some things that are bucking some of those trends. You know, for example, um, we're seeing actually um, some cooperation around um, uh, keeping churches closed. And we were polling, we found, Majorities of Republicans and Democrats, majorities across religious traditions um, that were, you know, concerned about um, reopening too early and keeping churches closed. Um, on the other hand, um, I think some of that in, in more recent weeks has been eroding. So we had this kind of moment of consensus where people were really worried that into, into March um, and April. And I think as we moved into May, uh, we've seen some of those partisan divides kind of come back out, racial divides come back out. And what we're really seeing in terms of big patterns is um, really Republicans um, taking their cues from the president and and particularly from the White House um, and and his administration being less worried and moving away from that consensus. Um, And also really a racial divide between white and African-American and Latino Americans in particular, uh, with whites much more um, likely to be moving toward reopening uh, now and uh, people of color in the country being uh, much more reticent, saying, "Well, wait a minute, you know, we we think we're not quite there." It's interesting. Uh, you mentioned churches closing and opening. A recent New York Times opinion piece explained that most churches are or have handled this crisis pretty well. That most churches are being very cautious about reopening. But I've had a lot of media call me and say, all these churches are not opening. Let's talk about that. Do you think the generalization, the churches are resisting social distancing recommendations resembles the way we generally hear about the faith voter block, especially the evangelical voting block, that that it's all sort of the bad stuff's happening all here. And when the media began to ask me about that, I said, well, most churches I know, even evangelical ones, are being cautious and careful as far as I can see. And though yesterday I talked to a lieutenant governor in the Midwest, and one of the principal pressures on them now to reopen is coming from a big evangelical megachurch. So that seems to be shifting and changing. I think it's been changing in recent weeks, but you know, when states were under, and it's been changing as states are removing their stay-at-home orders, right? But but when states were uh, clearly had the stay-at-home orders, uh, we we found both, you know, in polling. You know, people who are members of congregations, 
very, very few, I'm talking single digits, uh, who were saying they were going to attend religious services in person. And that was across the board. Again, Republican, Democrat, evangelical, mainline Catholic, you know, uh, really, it was a pretty broad consensus that no, you know, this is not a smart thing for us to do right now. We, we saw that too. We felt the same thing. You did it in polling scientifically. We did it anecdotally, what we're hearing and seeing from faith leaders and pastors. And yet the, the media was not recognizing that much at the time. Now, as you just said, some of the divisiveness may be coming back. So I'd love to discuss what you just raised about white evangelical support for Donald Trump. You did a, in April, PPRI released polling that showed double-digit declines in support for Trump among white evangelicals, white Catholics, and white mainline Protestants. What do you attribute this to, and how is it impacting Trump's overall approval rating and do you think this drop will hold or not through the election? Well, um, yeah, so we did find some really, we've been polling on this about every month. Um, so, you know, we had, we had polling uh, all throughout 2019. Actually, we've been, we've been tracking this since 2015. So we've had polling all the way back to 2015 um, and also every month um, this year. And so we've been able to see really as the pandemic has progressed and as Trump has shifted his responses uh, the, basically, what we saw is that he reached a peak of support in March. Um, now, for Trump, peak support is actually just under 50%, 49%. Um, but that was the highest favorability rating we had ever recorded uh, for, for, um, for President Trump. Now, it's much, much higher. Uh, for, that's overall. It's much, much higher than that among uh, white evangelical Protestants. Um, but we saw this um, really remarkable drop um, across uh, across groups, really, you know, we double digits, as you said, among white evangelical Protestants, white Catholics, white mainline Protestants. Now, that still leaves his um, his support uh, very, very high uh, among those groups because it started off. Um, so, for example, even after double digit support in April, white evangelical Protestant support is still two thirds uh, support, right? So it just went from uh, you know a little more than three quarters down to two thirds. Um, uh, but it has dropped to about half of white Catholics and under half of uh, white mainline Protestants. Um, and again, those are all double digit uh, drops. And what's happened is it basically March was the anomaly. Um, and I think that's that was like the, the, the turn when President Trump, I think, finally came around to admitting that this was a serious issue. Right. All through February, he'd been playing it down. And so March was really the first turn uh, where he started having these briefings. But then I think by April, those briefings had turned, I think it's you know fair to say, um, into um, very bumpy, um, rambling, um, you know things where Trump was using it to mostly air grievances as much as he was to, or even more than he was to give public health information. And I think that actually hurt him. Uh, and so I think we see that that effect um, in April um, that that his performances, I think, on the daily. Uh, basis um, during those things, I think, hurt him even among you know some of his strongest base groups. Yeah, I've got your numbers here. I find them very interesting. Uh, of course, the iconic eighty-one percent white evangelical support that was all over the media after the election in March. It was seventy-seven percent, not far away from that. But then you had this down to sixty-six percent, which is which is a ten-point drop. And as you say, uh, nearly half of white Catholics. But that went down from 60 to 48. Mm -hmm. And then to uh, white Protestants from 62 in March to 44%. So 
those are significant drops. So how do you interpret that from your polling? Yeah. Well, if you put those into context, what they look like is they basically drop back down to 2019 levels. Um, so like Mar- for the most part, March was the anomaly where it was really up well above levels that we've seen uh, before. But in, in all the groups you've just mentioned, they're roughly within the, the range of where they were across 2019. So he's basically kind of gone back to his baseline. Um, now, if you're, you know, uh, uh, thinking about this from the Trump campaign's point of view, um, what this looks like is really a squandered opportunity, right? That, that, uh, that he, they had a kind of rally around the flag effect um, in March, uh, where when he was first stepping onto the, the podium and kind of taking this seriously, and then not four weeks later, it's, he's lost it, right? It's kind of back down. So I don't think this has really changed the, the fundamental game um, so much, at least as we're seeing it right now, as it represents, I think, a squandered opportunity um, by, by Trump mm-hmm. and the Trump campaign. So you talk about the nation's obsession with white evangelical voting patterns. Has that waned amid our current crisis or from the election to now it's 81% to 66%? Uh, do you think this is altering, shifting, changing in ways that will last to the election? Or what do you predict just from your polling data? You know, if it, if it ever is hard to predict uh, uh, in a normal time, I mean, in this time, it is, uh, I, anybody tells you they know what's going on, um, you know, is, is, is not one who should be listened to. Um, but I, I think, you know, that it will matter a lot what happens um, going forward. You know, I, I think he had an opportunity, I think clearly lost that opportunity. Um, and now I think, you know, the, the, the question is what's going to happen between now and the election. And, you know, we're looking at, um, as you know, um, you know, it, it, we could be surpassing a hundred thousand deaths um, very easily if the current trends um, continue. And that's, da- you know, that's actually where the, the, um, the predictions were at the beginning of April and they got revised down to 60,000, right? If you remember right at the end of March and the beginning of April, they were revised down and now we've crossed 85,000 and we're, we're certainly headed toward a hundred, I think, um, uh, you know, very shortly. So that's a really different scenario. Um, you know, that we're, we're, you know, we're nearly within a month, we've almost doubled, uh, from 60 to over a hundred, you know, that's, that's a very big shift. Uh, the stock market is another, you know, big thing. And then the other uh, huge, you know, issue is um, uh, the unemployment numbers, you know, that just keep climbing and uh, with no end in, in sight. And particularly with, um, you know, things like the Paycheck Protection Program, which has propped up many small businesses. I mean, that's an eight week, eight week bandaid, right, on those businesses. And that's it. Um, and so if they've been floated for, you know, the months of May and June or April and May, um, we may see another wave of unemployment on the other side of that. And we could be easily looking at, you know, depression era um, levels of employment. So I think there's so many um, kind of scenarios out there that looks really grim. Um, and I, I think, you know, if those keep going, we don't have a huge turnaround. Um, it's going to be very, very hard uh, for, if you remember the Trump's favorability, as long as we've been tracking it typically is around 40, 40, 41%, something like that, right? And so uh, that's, you know, that's not 50, it's not 51. Um, so he's got to sort of reach beyond kind of his base uh, favorability by, by at least 10 points, um, you know, to get uh, get anywhere near a majority, you know, popular vote. 
um, in the election. And that's that's work that that's going to be an uphill slog um, if, you know, the, the stock markets in, in the in the toilet, the death tolls continue to decline, uh, particularly with reopenings happening without many of the benchmarks being met. Um, you know, it, it, there's just a lot of volatility here. So one of the biggest pieces of our discussion to me is about race in America, how your polling has revealed so much. And and a number of us have said how COVID has sort of laid bare uh, so many things in this country uh, that have always been true, but often have been denied or not acknowledged or, or even just accepted and not cared about. So what has PP, PRI's, what has PRI's polling looked like in regards to the racial disparities revealed by this virus? Uh, and in April 22nd uh, this year, you wrote for Sojourners comparing the racial violence following the 1919 influenza epidemic to the current moment and what's been ignited by the xenophobic actions of the president. And it says, we join you in, quote, flattening the curb of xenophobia. So how, what have you learned now even more since COVID-19, uh, verifying so many of these things? And how can polling be a tool for inclusion today? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, so, uh, you know, say it straight up. I mean, I'm, I'm concerned, deeply concerned. Um, it's kind of why I wrote the piece, you know, flattening the curve of xenophobia. We've been all thinking a lot about and sacrificing a lot um, to flatten, you know, the infection curve, uh, staying at home, uh, being safe, being distant uh, from, from people we love. Um, and, you know, I, it, it, it's, if we look back at history, um, you know, if history has kind of one big lesson for us, it's, that when there's a massive wave of suffering and death, um, a second wave of racism and xenophobia are typically not that far behind. Um, and so doing some preemptive work, I think um, all of us uh, thinking about those temptations to scapegoat, to point the finger um, are going to be very, very strong, particularly in an election context. Um, and so, you know, already when we have um, you know, the highest office in the land calling the virus, for example, a foreign virus, the Chinese virus, the Kung flu, um, all of these things have come from, you know, this the Wuhan virus have, have come from this um, administration. Um, and then also simultaneously using uh, the virus for, for um, a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric, closing down the border even more, um, uh, ratcheting up deportations, even of children who are alone, uh, we're seeing, you know, a lot of responses like that. And I think when we're seeing those kinds of xenophobic ideas being spread really from the highest office of the land, you know, there's real work to do um, to help, I think, decouple, you know, a virus from um, a, a kind of racial bias and racial racial prejudice here. And, and we've seen some of that already. We've seen some, um, the FBI is already tracking a surge of anti-Asian uh, racism. We have some reports already of Asian Americans being targeted, you know, both in terms of stigma, but also even in terms of some violent actions. Um, and so I, I wrote this piece really just trying to draw a, um, a line there um, and realize that we've got a history of this um, in the country. Um, and, you know, e even in, I mean, there's, there's multiple, you know, times in our history where kind of disease outbreaks have led to clampdowns or, um, 
even violence against um, certain ethnic groups. And just to realize like that's a, that's a human temptation that we really need to be vigilant um, about stamping out um, on the front end before uh, yet, you know, not to be too cute about it before it in fact goes viral. Well, you speak very eloquently about how this is so deeply rooted in our history and how the end of the end of white America per se demographically as the majority population is just revealing so much of what's been there for a long time and how COVID now has verified or revealed or exposed all of that is, uh, is really uh, the data shows we can't deny anymore the impact of race on all these things because COVID-19 just shows it. Yeah, I mean, we've had, you know, in, in many ways, we've had this public health data out there for a long time, right, that, that African-Americans uh, can be expected to live, uh, all things being equal, live shorter lives uh, than whites, uh, have, have more uh, poor out health outcomes. Um, you know, all this, you know, but if the, as you said, I think the right words, again, laid bare, revealed that COVID-19 has sort of made visible, I think, things that um, have often been invisible because they're, they're really due to long-term structural injustices. And I think Americans with our highly individualistic lenses, um, and, and I should say highly individualistic theologies, um, are we have a difficult time, I think, seeing these kinds of structural things. And I think one thing this, this disease has done is, again, they, yeah, reveal it, bring it to the surface. So just for example, you know, the latest data is looking at from Johns Hopkins, um, while African-Americans represent only about 13% of the populations in the states that we have that are even reporting uh, COVID-19 fatalities by race, you know, they account for 34% of the deaths. Um, and that you, even when you ask people, um, whites are only about half as likely as non-whites uh, in public opinion surveys to say someone in their family has contracted uh, the virus. And most of that is really due to things like um, more non-whites than whites uh, hold blue-collar jobs um, that, that sometimes require a trade-off between employment and safety. They're less likely to live in single-family homes, more likely to live uh, places with shared elevators or tight stairwells, less likely to have access to a car, um, and just less and more likely to have um, worse baseline health conditions. Right, all of that is like long-term structural um, injustice. And the the challenge also is that it's it's actually, I think um, you can see the injustice there. And then the other thing that I think is a real challenge for us, and and it's in and when I say us this time, I mean white people in America, um, as I am one. Um, is I think this sense of privilege and the way that the structures of this country have been set up, it has left whites with a kind of sense of invulnerability, right? That has been built on um, really centuries of injustice in the country. Um, and I, and you can see that already, like if, not only in the experiences here, but when you ask about, um, for example, uh, where the U.S. stands in relation to the pandemic, um, you have nearly two-thirds of non-whites uh, saying that the worst is yet to come, that they still think there may be another wave, um, that we're not at all have flattened the curve. Um, but when you ask whites that, it's less than half of whites who believe the worst is yet to come. And, and as many whites um, as that believe, you know, it's all behind us. So we're really facing, I think, racially structured, even visions of where we are um, with the virus and what we should be doing. Um, so we've got this kind of racial divide where, where whites who've been less affected by it 
um, and are less likely to see themselves as vulnerable generally are really ready to reopen. And we'll see most of the protests you've seen have been, you know, virtually all white crowds, um, you know, protesting the stay at home orders and people of color in the country who are much more um, vulnerable um, and have much more experience with it saying, yeah, not so fast. I've been reading this week about some of those people who are wanting to reopen so aggressively and often saying, but I don't know anybody who's got COVID. I don't know anybody who's who's gotten sick. And then on our faith table calls, we've had several African-American church leaders on these calls who in the, who during those calls over several weeks have lost their mother, lost their father, uh, elderly people in places like Detroit. So disparities are so clear. Just one quick point on that, Jim, is um, the the patterns are beginning to shift, though. Um, and and it, what it looks like is it, of course, did hit bigger urban areas that have higher proportions of people of color. So that first wave has hit African-Americans in particular um, harder than, than whites. But um, in the last weeks, um, we are seeing for the first time the, um, the number of new cases in high prevalence counties are actually for the first time um, in non-metropolitan areas in the South and the Midwest with a larger share of white residents. Um, so for example, if you look at the kind of end of March, whites were only um, about, well, actually less than half of the cases in high prevalence counties. Um, but in the last week of data, that number is 65%. So whites are now making up 65% of the new cases. And we're just, we, you know, there's a lag effect, right? We see the new cases and it takes three to five weeks before we see what the real re- results are in terms of deaths um, from those from those cases. And it's... I think we are in this place where, um, you know, the sense of whites kind of uh, uh, invulnerability and they're having not uh, experienced these cases yet on a kind of a collision course with a rapid move uh, to reopen because we, we could be in for a very dark time um, in three to five weeks. Well, um, we've seen reveal the unequal suffering of the pandemic so far, but as you're pointing out now, it may be that that shared and common suffering could even bring us together. Suffering sometimes does that. So that's maybe a theological or spiritual question going forward. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it, it, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this too, that, you know, I think that, that white Americans have been accustomed to, you know, having a sense of protection because the structures of society are really set up um, to insulate, you know, whites from economic downturns, political uh, fallout, physical danger, all of that stuff. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, we're facing a virus that is pretty oblivious to those expectations of safety uh, from, from white America. And, and I, I think that may come as a real shock uh, to the system um, that we, we may see. And it may, in fact, lead to, um, you know, some reevaluation and some greater sense, of, I mean, sense of solidarity in the wake of that. You put so much of this in that historical context, showing how a pollster like you, it's really both a science and an art, and it sometimes can reveal things about us that we need to face and even help us to see what kind of future that we'd like to have or who's going to be the we in this future going forward. So thank you, Robbie. Thanks, Jim. For news, resources, and reflections about our current public health crisis, visit sojo.net slash coronavirus. If you enjoy this podcast, please share this episode with your friends and family and 
even your enemies, as Jesus calls us to love them too. And what better way to love someone than to share a conversation just like this? We're available on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever you listen to for your podcast. After you listen, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And follow me on Twitter if you'd like at Jim Wallace. This is Jim Wallace for the Soul of the Nation. God bless you.